0: Today's guest reports that social science research shows that white children receive the wages of whiteness from early ages. As I say this, I'm clear that everyone listening has their own instant response to this statement. We're going to learn more about this from our guest in just a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. Today's guest is Dr. Margaret Hagerman, and she is an assistant professor of sociology at Mississippi State University and the author of White Kids Growing Up with Privilege in a Racially Divided America. Dr. Hagerman, welcome. Thank you. So, the first question is why this book
1: and why now? Sure. So when I was in graduate school, I was doing all kinds of reading of articles written about the really important subject of racial socialization. And what that really refers to is all of the different ways that families communicate ideas, and particularly parents, to children about race. Most of that research focuses on how parents who are raising children of color, and in particular African American children, Are preparing their kids for potential racism in their future, acts of discrimination, prejudice, and so forth. Um, And so I found that research really interesting and really important. Um, And there's, you know, especially in this current moment, although I think probably for a long time. um, But I was really curious about how it is that white children are also learning about race in the context of their families. And so I decided to do a research study, um, which is what this book is um, based upon.
0: And, and you make it clear pretty early on that you have not written a book about middle class or working class white families. Why is that, and why is that important? Why did you make the
1: distinction? So that's a great question. Um, and my reasoning for why I decided to choose families to study that were upper middle class or affluent uh, meaning that they had high-paying jobs, they had high levels of education, and they owned single-family homes um, that were quite, in some cases, quite um, you know valuable. Uh, but the reason that I wanted to study these families was because these parents have virtually you know any choice, for the most part, available to them about things like schools and neighborhoods and vacations and extracurriculars. And so I wanted to see like when parents are faced with all of these different options, you know, in terms of setting up their child's life. What choices do they make, and how are those choices connected to their own understandings of race? Um, and so that was one of the reasons that I, that I chose this group. I also, you know, recognize that the research shows that often children who grow up in, in families of wealth and, and economic privilege uh, go on to, you know, be adults that have economic privilege um, later on. And so I also thought it would be interesting to study how children who, you know, likely will be in powerful positions in the future, how they are learning about privilege in their youth.
0: And did you find that the children took their learnings of their youth into their adulthood and continued with their own
1: children? Well, I went back and so I, the, the, the kids in my study were in middle school um, when I did this two-year ethnography where I lived in the community. I took care of some of these children in terms of, you know, child care. Um, I spent lots of time with them. But then I also did go back when they were in high school and re-interviewed a segment of them. Um, and so I haven't, you know, followed them yet again. Uh, they're all, all in college now. Um, but I did see that some of the ideas that were present, many of the ideas that were present for these kids in middle school, I saw them um, those ideas even more cemented as they were getting older and as they were in high school. Um, so I do think that there's a lot that is happening in early ages that sort of, you know, gets, gets reproduced into the future and really shapes how people are understanding the social world around them.
0: Well, if you do go back and um, work with them again post-college, let me be the first, if I am, to say, please come back and let us know what you find. <laughs> sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's talk about how Upper income white children learn about race. And let's say that they are living with a family that sees themselves as racially conscious, not biased, not prejudiced. What do those children learn about race from those?
1: Sure. So I think it's important to note that in my research, I found that none of the parents wanted to raise children who were bigoted or explicitly racist or anything like that. They all told me that they wanted to raise children who were um, not racist, and that was important to them. But as you sort of allude to, you know, some of the parents were more committed and invested in raising children that would either challenge racism or at least be able to recognize racism, while other families were more interested in raising, quote-unquote, colorblind children. And so for that first group of parents who were really invested in trying to teach their children, you know, strategies to resist racism and challenge racism, um, they were much more committed to living in neighborhoods that were um, either – Racially or economically integrated, or in the case of many of the families in a, in a white neighborhood, predominantly white neighborhood that was located within relative prox- close proximity to a predominantly black neighborhood, meaning that their children then attended public schools that were racially integrated. Um, these parents talked a lot about current events involving race and in the media um, in public you know kind of discourse. Um, but they also provided their children with books about um racism and documentaries and other forms of of media um so uh, you know certainly these parents still conveyed some messages to their children um that their kids were you know perhaps better than other kids or or more um that they were that they you know were smarter or those, those kinds of things but they they you know at least in talking with them they were they told me they were very committed. Raising kids are anti-racist. You
0: you shared a story um, of a drive you took with Edward, um, and and he wanted to go to McDonald's. So, um, no comment on McDonald's and the and the um, value of of the meal. (laughs) You (laughs) learned a lot about Edward just during that drive. Tell us what you learned.
1: Oh, we were driving um, back from his hockey practice or you know extracurricular activities, and we stopped at this McDonald's and I was relatively new to the community. I had no idea that different McDonald's had different meanings, you know, um, like you, I try to avoid McDonald's. Um, but so he, he has to go to McDonald's. And I just stopped at the, you know, closest one that I saw as we were driving along and, you know, he, he was looking out the window. And so I noticed him look out the window and then he was looking at this group of kids that were getting off the school bus and they had backpacks and they were wearing the same kind of clothes that he wears and they were throwing snowballs at each other Um, And this is something, of course, that I've seen him do with his friends, you know, recently. And so he told me that we must not be in a very good neighborhood. And I was, like, really struck by that. And then I realized that he was looking at children who were African American. And so looking at these kids, getting off the school bus, somehow that, you know, was a signal to him that we were not in a good neighborhood. Um, and then he also followed up by saying that his mom said that this wasn't a good neighborhood and they don't they don't go to this McDonald's because it's in this neighborhood. Um, and so it was a striking moment where, you know, he was observing the world around him and coming up with his own ideas, um, maybe shaped by his parents' ideas, but nonetheless in that moment his parents weren't there and he was interpreting something about race. And how old was Edward? Um, he was 11 or 12, yeah. Okay, so
0: really a young child, but certainly a child very much old enough to understand that there is race and racism in the world, even if he doesn't know how to define it.
1: Absolutely. And what was interesting was that a few weeks prior, when I had been interviewing him for this project, he told me that racism is no longer a problem in America and that we don't have racism. And yet it was really interesting to see him in his everyday life, you know, you, you know, sort of draw upon racial understandings um, that he had developed. So it was, it was interesting to, to note that sort of um, difference, you know, between one day and the next. You talked about
0: some parents who were striving to bring up colorblind children. What was your sense of those parents and that approach?
1: So these were parents who genuinely seem to believe that if they did not talk about race, then their children would not have any ideas about race, and that that would be good, and that we should, you know, strive towards living in a society that's colorblind. And while that might be a great uh, goal, certainly um, empirical research shows that we live in a society where we still have lots of, you know, racism and racial inequality, um, and white supremacy still structures many of our institutions and so forth. Um, and so it was just sort of interesting because his parents would tell me, oh, we don't talk about race. But then when I talked to their children, their children had all kinds of ideas about race. Um, So simply not talking about race is not going to somehow buffer your children from, you know, coming up with ideas about race, because they live in a society where, like I said, you know, they look out the window and they see patterns, you know, they watch TV and they see patterns. Um, And so, you know, it was interesting that these children they actually had a lot of anxieties and questions about race that they felt like they couldn't really talk about with their with their families um, because the subject was almost taboo in a way
0: so clearly it underscores the fact uncomfortable though it may be that not talking to I was going to say children, but certainly not talking in general about things that are sort of in your face, doesn't make them go away. It kind of complicates whatever the issue is that much more so.
1: Absolutely. And I think it's actually dangerous because I noticed that the, there were occasions where kids were actually trying to figure out the social world between, you know, amongst themselves, and they were coming up with answers that were, you know, just flat out wrong um, and, you know, like Like, you know, why are there so many black, you know, um, um, NBA players? And the answer being, oh, well, black people must have extra muscles in their legs that allow them to be so athletically successful, um, which we know is completely wrong and actually is connected to a long history of, you know, scientific racism. And, but, you know, so, um, you know, it was, it's problematic in that if you don't talk about it, then the children are coming up with these ideas and maybe getting these ideas from places in the media or wherever, you know, and so I think, yeah, I think that not talking about it is actually, it's not just, you know, ignoring problems, it's also maybe even exacerbating them. <laughs>
0: We're going to take a break, but when we come back, I'd like to talk to you just for a moment. You you reference um, uh, political two political science scientists who have said that prejudice is an acquired taste, and I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about that when we return, folks. My name is Pamela Brewer. You're listening to Mind Talk, and I'm having a conversation with Dr. Margaret Hagerman, who is the author of White Kids Growing Up with Privilege in a Racially Divided. America. America. America, we will be right back. Dr. Hagerman, you reference in your book, White Kids, political scientists Donald Kinder and Lynn Sanders who say that prejudice is an acquired taste. Can you explain a little bit more about what that means?
1: Sure. So um, I'm writing about this in the beginning of my book to sort of talk about some of the gaps in the research literature. Um, And so, yeah, so scholars like Kinder and Sanders are writing about about prejudice as an acquired taste, and there's some other social psychologists that talk about, you know, how it is that that young people, um, or not really how, but they just assume that cultural values are acquired in childhood. Um, And so what I'm trying to get at here is that, while certainly I agree that with this research, there's very little sort of empirical analysis of how this process actually works. Like, how, like we all know that children are learning about the world when they're young, but how does it actually work? Like, how, what are the mechanisms at play? And um, for example, in my research, you know, I was really interested in whether what parents said to their kids um, about race was as impactful as the things that children were observing through their interactions with others, or through the schools they went to, or the neighborhoods they lived in, and so forth. So, so I'm drawing on that on, on these um, this other scholarship that's really important, but but po- pointing out that we need to have some real research in this area. We can't just make assumptions that this process happens um, without actually having data.
0: Did you find that there were areas or topics that parents who saw themselves as not being racist? And teaching their children the same, but did you find that there were things and thoughts that they would routinely share with their children unknowingly, sort of unconsciously?
1: Yeah, so I think the classic example, and Beverly Tatum talks about this in her great book, um, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria, Um, but this sort of classic example of locking the car doors and driving through certain neighborhoods, Um, so it can be sort of subtle things, nothing is said, but something like a behavior. Um, But I also noticed in my research, lots of times parents would use coded language, racially coded language. Um, I also noticed times where parents would um, you know engage in behaviors that they didn't think were contributing to their children's understandings of race but you know like mocking the names of black children or sort of um, you know making fun of the black mothers at the school you know so there were all kinds of things that were I, I thought were much more explicit um, but they didn't certainly didn't see that as um, a problem um, I talked in particular I think the best example is probably at this private pool where they' um, they're, they're the the kids are participating in this thing called water ballet um and they're dancing to Beyoncé and the moms who I'm sitting with in the in the crowd are talking about quote unquote ghetto booties and you know this in this way that just seems like oh this is so fun and funny um and yet it, you know it's obviously objectifying black women's bodies and you know, a whole, a whole host of other, um, you know, in my opinion, at least, racist messages. And they were reproducing that language with their own daughters. Um, and so I found that moment really striking. And these are parents, again, that don't believe that they are communicating anything about race to their children. Um, but I, I just didn't see it that way in the, when I was analyzing my data.
0: When you say that there was some racially coded language uh, that you would observe parents using, can you give us an example of some of the things you heard?
1: Sure. So obviously I hate, you know, repeating some of this, but, um, you know, like there was one mom who I was interviewing who was talking about, you know, how her tax dollars shouldn't go to pay for moms with their fingernails out to here and sort of like indicating long, you know, fingernails. Um, which she's never saying anything about race in that comment, but she certainly is trying to imply something about, you know, black women or, or Latino women in, in that comment. Um, there's all, all kinds of other things that were mentioned about, you know, gangs and about um, drugs and, you know, all these things that are are used um, you know, in in ways that I I perceive, and I'm a white woman, um, you know, sort of this communicating about race between, you know, white people communicating about race without actually naming race. Um, And I certainly saw a lot of that as I spent two years in this community.
0: You know, I can hear some folks um, with my crystal ball. I can hear some folks who are listening to us now saying, Oh my gosh, now I gotta worry about everything I say to my kid. Even if I'm not aware of what I'm saying, now I gotta worry. Do you want parents to worry as they read your book?
1: No, I definitely don't want parents to worry. Um, but I do think that we collectively um need to think as members of a democracy, um, about whether or not our values are matching onto our behaviors. And so when you know, when when people say things like they value equal opportunity or they value fairness, you know, thinking really carefully about whether or not you know your parenting decisions, or you know, even if you're not a parent, just your everyday decisions, you know, do those decisions really map onto those values that you that you profess? Um, so I think that's more my call to parents: is just to be more thoughtful about. Some of these unintentional ways that we're communicating with young people, um, ideas that reproduce inequality, and maybe maybe ideas that also challenge inequality and challenge racism. Um, but I do think that you know, like I say in the book, there has not been a lot of research on what goes on in white families in terms of the reproduction of racism. And you know, for folks that want to challenge racism and are white and are raising kids, I think you know we we need to be more there's perhaps more room to be thoughtful.
0: You say that children um, are particularly powerful in their families.
1: Uh, What do you mean by that? They're kids. Yeah, so what we know from research on, for example, residential segregation is that white, especially white parents, tend to make decisions about where to live based on understandings of the local schools. And so one way that white children have a lot of power and influence, you know, in their families' lives is that oftentimes they are, you know, they are the ones that their parents are thinking about when they're making these decisions. And these decisions lead to larger um, forms of inequality. And, and I think, you know, residential segregation, I think, is one of the best examples of that. Um, but kids have all kinds of power in shaping, you know, the, there were some parents in, in the study that... Um, you know, filed a lawsuit against the school because they were unhappy with something that was happening at the school. So that's a lot of resources that are being allocated you know, to this legal fight. Um, so, I, so I actually do think that you know, children have a lot of power. Um, I think we can even see evidence of that in some of the, the ways that children protest and youth protest. Um, and I'm thinking, for example, of, you know, the youth leaders involved with Black Lives Matter, the ways that their voices are heard or not heard um, in comparison to some protests by, you know, groups of kids that are largely perceived, at least, to be white and how, you know, their voices are, are heard or not heard differently, you know. So um, I think that kids and youth have more, more agency and power than we often think about, um, and I think it's important to consider. Would you say that
0: the children that you see today as we speak are more or less racially aware than the children that you met with as you were doing your research uh, in preparation of creating white kids?
1: So that's a really interesting question. I am doing some new um, research right now. I've been doing it for the past year or so um, with some children across the country looking at sort of, you know, it's it, sort of their perceptions of racism in the current political moment. Um, and I do think that, that you know, if I, I don't have lots of findings yet, I'm still analyzing my data, but just sort of to speak in general terms, I do think that, and I can't make generalizations, of course, because it's not a big survey or something, but um, the kids that I've spent time with, I think that they're talking a lot about racism and politics in a way that I did not see um, earlier. Uh, Certainly when I conducted the research for white kids, President Obama was in office and there were a lot of folks who felt like, oh, this is a great sign of racial progress and, you know, this is evidence of post-racial America and and so forth. Um, And I I certainly am not hearing those same um, messages, at least from the kids that I've spoken to um, more recently.
0: Do Do you have a sense that children are angrier or less angry Today, than when you first began the research on this book? Or have you looked at that at all?
1: You know, it's interesting. And, and again, it's hard for me to really draw comparisons because my sample size is so small. But um, I have spoken to a number of kids. And, and I think one important difference with this new research is that I'm looking at, I'm, I'm interviewing children across different racial groups. Um, and certainly I have talked to a number of children of color, in particular um, some Latinx or Hispanic kids who um, are, have expressed some really uh, strong, and I would, I would even go to say maybe angry or really more scared, um, ideas about some of the immigration policies that are going on, um, some of the you know, other political um, uh, events of recent um, months so yeah I, I I'm really interested in this work, and again'm I'm, I'm still just getting the data collected, but certainly, I think there are some other folks that are doing some research, and we're finding that this current moment is impacting young people and you know I think that that can be um, we need to think about strategies for helping kids navigate this particular moment
0: The idea that um, social media uh, and TV and just media in general um, has a role in, in shaping children's view of race and racism and pretty much everything that we, we live with. Um, I would suggest often, regardless of what they learn from home, they're very much uh, impacted upon by the world of media and what media does and doesn't say, and, and which is kind of head twisting sometimes. I wonder what impact you think that social media in general has on the views about race and racism among the population. That...
1: Well, I don't know if I can say that it has a more of an impact or less of an impact, but I definitely think it has an impact. Um, and in fact, some of the examples in my book talk, you know, I talk specifically about um particular shows on tv or news programs or documentaries um or even films like um one of the moms was using the film the help to teach her white child about um you know the history of racism in america which you know that film has been widely critiqued by historians um as being historically inaccurate and focusing on this white woman and so on and so forth um And so, yeah, so I think that there were a lot of different forms of media that the kids were exposed to. Um, There was one child who really wanted to argue with his um, middle school teacher, and so every morning before school he would read the newspaper um, so that he could go in and and be ready to go for for his his daily arguing. Um, And so I think that, you know, media, kids are consuming media, um, you know, all the time, even when when we just have, you know, TV, or TV on in the background or radio on in the car or whatever it might be, um, you know, children are listening and they're hearing things. And maybe they're not always paying attention, but I think sometimes they are. Um, and certainly I saw that in my, in my research. As far as social media goes, most of the children in this book um, in middle school were not quite using social media, really. They were sort of just beginning to do that. Um, but certainly when I went back and interviewed them in high school, they were using social media not only to get their news information, but they were also using social media to, like, like organize with one another um, if they wanted to have a protest at their school or – or, you know, have a conversation about something that had happened in their community, um, certainly that's one of the places they went to, to, to do that. So um, I think that as the kids are getting older, they're probably, they were using this, this technology much more.
0: So kind of the good news, bad news about social media and its usage.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, we could, we could think about that for adults too, you know. I mean, in some ways it's great building community, talking to people that you otherwise would never have, you know, any, you know, access to, um building new friendships and groups of, you know, interest groups and so on. But then the flip side is um, you know, some of the more more dark sides of social media and the um, you know, the, the either the misinformation that's available there or um, you know, people, people having, you know, lots of examples of bullying and harassing and all of that stuff as well. So I definitely think, think the study of youth and social media is one that is getting more and more attention, and I think it's really important.
0: Did you find that children uh, who were going to private schools had a different view of race than children who were not?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. In my study, um, you know, there were 36 children, and about a third of them went to private schools. And in this community, there were a number of different private schools that they attended. Um, But what I found was that for the children who went to private school, they told me things like they were smarter than their public school peers, they were more special than their public school peers, and most importantly, they told me, in my opinion, they told me that, they were going to be future leaders in America and um, that they were getting the tools to do just that. So, uh, you know, I I think it's kind of interesting, though, because some of the private schools were actually doing a lot more – they were providing a lot more critical education in terms of history, you know, more multicultural history of racism. So in some ways the private schools were doing some really good things, in my view. But I also think that the simple fact of saying, oh, well, you're special, you're going to a private school – you know, that also is communicating something to these kids about their position in the world. And, and could that be
0: that they're seeing themselves as special not because of race but because of privilege?
1: Sure. So I think that, that my book is really trying to look at how race, privilege, and class privilege intersect. But absolutely, I think that there are, are lessons from, um, you know, my findings that speak to both, you know, race and class separately as well as how how they interrelate.
0: Dr. Hagerman, you really have created an interesting look at the experience of white kids growing up with privilege in a racially divided America. Where can folks learn more about what what you've written, what you're doing, and, and what your future holds for you?
1: Sure. So I have a website. It's um, margarethagerman.com, and I also am on Twitter at maggiehagerman with a G, not a B. Um, uh, There's a there's a reporter that's Maggie Haberman. That's not me. It's Maggie Hagerman, Um, and that would be the best place I think to find out about my about my research.
0: All right. Can you spell Maggie Hagerman for us?
1: Sure. It's M A G G I E, H A G. E R M A N
0: So either the Twitter or website and we can find out more about what you're doing. Yes, sounds good. And you'll be back when your research this round of research is complete, I hope.
1: Yes, after I have some time to get going. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. Thank you so much for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk.
1: Thank you, Dr. Brewer. And,
0: folks, thank you for joining us today on this edition. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service, and it is not intended to replace any work that you may choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is available on demand by going to MYNDTalk.org. And I'd love to know where in the world you are as you're listening today, so do email me at Pamela, P A M E L A, at mindtalk.org M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G MindTalk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications and don't forget to go to the mindtalk.org homepage to sign up for our weekly free giveaway remember always folks if it's unacceptable it's unacceptable take care